This episode of the Culture Soup Podcast is brought to you by the 30-Minute Mentor. We are now accepting applications for the 2019 Summer Cohort. That is a mentoring circle. And this year, we are expanding to 10 people instead of five. That's right. 10 people will have the opportunity to have six monthly sessions one-on-one with myself, along with three group sessions with myself and your cohort members, and unlimited access to your cohort members via group text. You're going to get amazing benefits. It will allow you to have unfettered access to all master classes online, whether they are on demand or upcoming for absolutely free. You'll also have access to free tools that others will not. You don't want to miss this six month experience that proves to be an opportunity to grow in your career. We're also expanding our cohorts to include not just management professionals, who are mid-level and entrepreneurs within the three to five year stage of growth. But we're also expanding to educators. If you are in the education field, whether you are faculty, staff, coach, if you pour into students at any level, we wanna hear from you and you'll receive a special discount code upon your acceptance into the cohort. I look forward to seeing all of your applications and I can't wait to get going. See you online. Hey y'all, this is Culture Soup where tech, culture, and business collide. It's a podcast that spoons up everything hot from social media. I'm your host, L. Michelle Smith, and each episode we bring you some of the most notable and not yet notable thought leaders in tech, business, and culture. The year was 1989. I had just come on campus in the fall at Texas Christian University, a predominantly white institution. In fact, there were probably only 3% of the population that was black, including myself. And yet, on Thursday night, everything came to a screeching halt at 7 p.m. Why? That was the very beginnings of what would become known as must-see TV. Thursday night was a ritual, despite your race, despite your background. You went to a nearby television, whether it's in a lounge or someone's room, and you stopped to watch The Cosby Show and immediately following a different world. That's the setup for today's show because I had the extraordinary privilege to headline with an actor from a different world who was also an entrepreneur, a creator, 
a producer, and you know what? Just an all-around great guy. His name is Daryl M. Bell. You may remember Daryl as the character Dwayne Wayne's best friend. Yeah, Ron Johnson. Daryl and I had the privilege of delivering keynote addresses at the inaugural leadership conference at an HBCU, the school, Lane College. And to make it even more ironic, the president of that university is Dr. Logan Hampton. I met Logan in 1989. It wouldn't be until 2018 in Detroit, Michigan, at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention and Career Fair, where I would run into Logan once again at a private dinner hosted by NBC Universal. As it turns out, NBC Black or NBC BLK was doing some work with HBCU presidents. They invited them to the dinner that's usually crawling with journalists and communicators like myself. I walked into the room at this very nice restaurant and there were people mixing and mingling. Among them, Dr. Logan Hampton. In fact, he was one of 12 HBCU presidents in that room that night. I sat and had dinner with Dr. Hampton, kind of had to get used to calling him that, because he was our student activity leader when I was a freshman at TCU. I also met other presidents from Houston Tillotson in Austin, Texas, Philander Smith in Arkansas. Oh, the list goes on. But I made a commitment that night to several of the HBCU presidents, and that was that I would make my time available to them for free if they would host me at their colleges and universities to speak to black students. You see, I do guest lecture at other universities, but it's rare that I have the occasion to go to an HBCU. The last time I did was in 2016 at Howard University. So how does this relate to Daryl Bell? Well, as it turns out, Daryl and Dr. Hampton are frat brothers. They're members of Alpha Phi Alpha, the fraternity that is my brother fraternity to Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, of which I'm a member. But that's not how they connected. Seems that last year around homecoming time, Dr. Hampton reached out to one other cast member of a different world to come visit the campus. It happened to be Jasmine Guy. You'll remember her as Whitley Gilbert. Whitley, or Jasmine Guy, at the last minute had a family emergency and couldn't come. And Daryl made himself available at the last minute. Those two hit it off like gangbusters. So this year, when it was time to do the leadership conference, Dr. Hampton reached out to his frat brother 
and he also reached out to his sorority sister. Yours truly. After Daryl's keynote, which was about communications in a brand new world, I had the opportunity to sit down with Daryl M. Bell and talk to him about his keynote and also about some of the fun topics and behind the scenes insider information regarding a different world, which many of us are huge fans and call it the greatest of all times because it did a few things. One, it shifted culture even more so than the Cosby Show, which helped us to see African-Americans in a totally different light. Well-to-do, not just middle-class, but upper-middle-class Black people who were educated and acted a lot like many of us that were going to colleges and higher institutions. But a different world did something different. It allowed us to go on the campus of a make-believe historically black college or university and get a feel for what life is like to be at a black college. That's all I'll say for right now. Daryl and I cover off on a lot more in our fireside chat that happened live in front of students, faculty, and community members of East Jackson, Tennessee. And I am proud to bring it to you today with the help of the mass communication students and staff and faculty from Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. Ladies and gentlemen, a fireside chat between myself, L. Michelle Smith, and Daryl M. Bell, actor, entrepreneur, creator, my frat brother, and now my friend on this special double episode edition of the Culture Soup Podcast. After you hear the conversation between me and Daryl, I will introduce to you President Logan Hampton of Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. Awesome, thank you, Dr. Stewart. Hey, everybody. So, let's talk, Daryl. Sure. <laughs> I just have uh, several questions about what you just talked about yeah. around communications and some of the things that we talked about on the ride up. So you said communications is essential for what you do, yes. whatever it might be. Can you tell me in what ways you're currently leveraging effective communications to succeed in what you do as an entrepreneur, as a producer? Oh, well, gosh, um, as, a, as a producer, uh, across the landscape of, of film and television, you have to have an ongoing conversation with buyers. So at any given point, any television network might say, we're looking for shows with women from 16 to 34, yeah. we need a show with men from uh, 25 to 50, or whatever the, the case may be. But that's an ongoing conversation. In order to have a capacity to sell to buyers, sure. you have to know what it is they're looking for. Right. Um, it, you know, a lot of people can decide, well, you know, I have this idea for a show about uh, painting 
paint sneakers. <laughs> well, that's terrific. You know, there are a lot of people that paint sneakers. Yeah. But if nobody's buying that idea, what do you do with it? Right. So th that's probably the most essential way as a producer, you have to have uh, effective communication with all buyers. And the other thing in, in Hollywood, your job is temporary. Right. So whoever is making the decision about what they're buying today may not be the same person that's there tomorrow. Right. And you have to make all the inroads that you've established with whomever you were talking to about, right. now you have to deal with their successor. And the entire landscape can change about what they're looking for. Well, and that's interesting, too. You just mentioned something that I think that this generation is going to see more of than any other before. What you just described is a gig economy, right? Yes. So you, you live from gig to gig. Is that? Tell us more, because I think everybody knows you from a different world, but they don't know you as a production company owner. Well, that, I mean, just me, myself, almost every actor is an independent contract. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you move from one job to the other. Uh, every producer or independent producer I know is it will tell you uh, it's the greatest job in the world unless you can do something else. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> because it's hard. Yeah. It, it's hard. Producers have uh, two simple functions. Mm -hmm. One, they either have to make a deal with a network or uh, studio to sell and put together a television or film project, or they have to raise the money to do it themselves. Right. Bottom line is, either one of those, very difficult. Yeah. It's an insular community, it's relationship driven, and raising money for any venture is difficult. Right. So, for everyone who wants to be an entrepreneur, it's one of the, the things I enjoy most about Shark Tank, mm -hmm. is when they say you give up a 40-hour work week working for some company to become an entrepreneur where you get to work 80 or 90 hours a week. Right. That is the trade-off for being your own boss. Right. And if everything fails, there's no one that you, you, you can't call your supervisor or the president of the company. It is, what am I going to do to fix it? It's on you. And that is, that is challenging as it is rewarding because all of your successes are so much sweeter. Right. Once you're able to pull the project together, put all the persons in place, and you see it all work out, that is the sweetest of victories. So high risk, high rewards. No question. Okay. Let's shift gears a second and talk more about communications. On the ride up, yeah. you talked about how you have friends that don't necessarily believe what you do. And you described in your keynote how important it is and how on social media sometimes we kind of edit who we have in our communities mm -hmm. and we're talking but we're not listening. Sure. You said that you have friends that wear MAGA hats. Why is that important? Okay, that's, let's, let's try not to <laughs> get too incendiary this morning, but sure. for, for me, um, What's, what's really interesting is I have a very diverse and eclectic group of friends. Mm -hmm. uh, of my conservative friends, and I, I would say conservative and Republican friends, mm -hmm. um, and I should also bifurcate conservative and Republicans, so the conservatives who believe there are no real Republicans in Congress, mm -hmm. they think the Republican Party are Democrat light. And most of my conservative friends that identify that mm -hmm. are black. Mm -hmm. 
that's even more interesting. It's layered. Yeah. So, uh, but the conversation with any number of them is, is really interesting to me because some are dogmatic in terms of expressing just talking points from Fox News. Mm -hmm. Some are Neanderthal, that I would describe him <laughs> that way, one in particular. Um, uh, when, for example, uh, when, I, when challenged about how is it that you as a Christian Republican can support a president who's had, you know, who's paid multiple women mm -hmm. uh, while being married, and he's, his response was, all that says to me is the president is attracted to sexy women. Hmm. And I'm, I'm filtering how he... Right, but, but, sure. But that's how he justified it. But more importantly, well, I won't say more important, but then further to differentiate that, um, one of my African-American conservative friends really gets upset when he sees Robert De Niro or Meryl Streep at some award show bemoaning what the president has done. Sure. When he said, how can Hollywood try to take the moral high ground on any issues, particularly those of racism, when Hollywood is one of the most racist places in the world? Mm. You don't, there's not a single person of color that runs a major studio or television network, not one. Mm. And there is a, there is a um, media advocacy group called the Greenlining Group, and they did a study that showed America's white males represent 34% of the population, but they represent 85% of all the images in film and television. Wow because content reflects leadership. Yeah. So if there were African-Americans that ran all the studios, I can tell you all of my friends would have jobs. Right. That's just how it would look. That's because real talk. I would employ all my friends. Mm -hmm. So in, in many ways, it's not always about racism, but it, it is about nepotism or I hire the people I like. Right. And it just so happens the people that I like look like me in many cases. Um, but. It's, it's a rich and informative conversation to have someone that will challenge all of your beliefs. Mm -hmm. Because part of what I believe, even in public discourse today, but one of the issues is, is one of cognitive dissonance. Pe people are so entrenched to what they believe if the facts contradict them, right. it causes such anxiety, they'd rather ignore the fact than admit that they're wrong. Absolutely. So when I get into a conversation, this has gone totally political, but when I, <laughs> okay. when I get into a conversation with a friend who's bemoaning that MS-13 people are coming in through the border, and I say to him, if you look at crime in America, MS-13 is responsible for less than 1% of 1% mm -hmm. of all crimes. Mm -hmm. It's not the national emergency mm -hmm. you're talking about. It just factually isn't. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't resonate if you are being pumped dogma. Right. You know, experts call that echo chambers, where you surround yourself with people that just agree with you. So you don't really get to know what's going on in someone else's head. And the idea is not to necessarily agree, yeah. but just to listen, right? And you want someone to challenge your supposition. So again, the same friend who, when the president was banning Muslims mm -hmm. and there was such 
outraged that this was racist, this is not who we are as Americans. He said, well, if you go back to the 70s, when Jimmy Carter was president and there was the Iranian hostage crisis, Democratic President Jimmy Carter banned Iranians coming into America. Yeah. But Democrats didn't call him a racist. Mm -hmm. They didn't say this wasn't us. It's a double standard. Mm -hmm. That's that's the sort of thing where when you go back and look and find out, wow, yeah. that's what happened, it makes you challenge your own suppositions to turn off every dissenting opinion that you may hear. There was another topic that we covered on the ride up that I think. This was a long ride. <laughs> it was a long ride. It was good long though. Ride filled with lots of talking. And we're going to get to some of the really, really juicy parts too. But um, we talked about calling Kaepernick yeah. and how perhaps with his well intended, sincere gesture, mm -hmm. that maybe there were some miscommunications there because he may not have considered his entire audience. Can we talk about that? This is a really interesting subject because I know we have some athletes in the house, uh, and I would imagine this is a subject everyone feels passionately about in some way, shape, or form. Um, for me, if you go back to the original interview with Colin in the locker room mm -hmm. when he had been sitting on the bench, a member of the press said, Colin, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. And his answer, and I'm going to paraphrase, but essentially said, well, there's a lot of injustice in America right now, and America's supposed to be about land of the free and the home of the brave, and it's just not happening for everybody right now. Very vague. Okay. Yeah. And then there was a follow-up question where the reporter said, well, what exactly are you talking about? And he said, well, like uh, police brutality. And he just kind of threw it out there. Mm -hmm. And that's how that got attached to what this protest was. And then it was by the assistance of other members of his team and the community mm -hmm. that said, well, instead of sitting, take a knee and all of that. So let's step back for a moment. Specifically, what Colin is engaged in is nonviolent direct action protests. Right. And if you want to look at an example of one of the most successful nonviolent direct action leaders, that would be Martin Luther King Jr. Sure. But there needs to be a one-to-one -one ratio for the protests against those who are denying the justice that you seek. So in the 60s, if you couldn't eat lunch at the lunch counter, you sat in at the lunch counter. Right. If you couldn't ride in the front of the bus, you boycotted the buses. Mm -hmm. If you couldn't vote, you protested and marched for, marched for the right to vote. There was a one-to-one -one ratio. If, here in Memphis, Tennessee, if the sanitation workers couldn't get fair pay and equal work conditions, we're gonna go on strike. Very laser focused. With that, what did we see? Mm -hmm. We saw the end of segregation, we saw the Civil Rights Act, we saw the Voting Rights Act, we saw the end of the Vietnam War. There was a lot accomplished for all that was done for all the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Contrast that with what Collins done. Mm -hmm. Well, we know he got a big deal with Nike. Yes. We know they settled, we know he got a commercial. We know that everybody said he should be back in the league. Everyone said that he should be playing. We haven't heard anything about violence against people of color in our community. Right. Nor can we point to some 
discernible metric for how we've advanced that cause. And you can even contrast that if you look at the Parkland shooting. Those kids who had their school shot up have already had a march where they sat there with lawmakers and they debated Marco Rubio in his face about changing the laws about guns and about guns in schools. Mm -hmm. They've gotten more, they've gotten more progress for that issue and for what they've experienced, and these are high school kids that didn't have a platform yeah. that Colin Kaepernick had. So in your view, it really was a matter of communications. No question, because look, of all the things that you can't deny, that certainly he, he has the right to do it. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a really difficult situation for the NFL because of all the people that could have tried to stop him, they right. all supported him. That would be San Francisco police, mm -hmm. the San Francisco 49ers, and the NFL. All of them supported him doing his protest. Mm -hmm. But the, the uh, I, was, I was going somewhere sure. in, in particular, but the, the idea that he chose to do this during the national anthem. Right. The national anthem means so many different things to so many people. So if you ask one person, it's about the military. If you ask somebody else, it's about patriotism. If you ask someone else, you may get a different answer. But people are so passionate about yeah. how they feel about the national anthem. If you protest it, even without knowing what your cause is, you have already built in a right. segment of the community that will oppose you irrespective of what your issue is. No matter what. That is what he built into this protest. Mm -hmm. there were, it, people were tone deaf. I don't care what your problem is, get off my lawn mm -hmm. for the way in which you've cho chosen to do it. Right. You know, that, that speaks to the degree to which the protest was imperfect, right. he was an imperfect messenger, but there are some people who say, look, it raised the consciousness of the conversation. We're having a, a conversation about it. Right. And I say, so you want participation trophies. Yeah. So you want to just be able to say, we talked about it, but we didn't do anything about right. it. That to me is symbolic, it's not harmful, but it's not substance. Right. So raising awareness, but not putting the action behind it. So let's shift to the fun stuff. A different world. <laughs> we talked about how the popularity of the show has transcended generations. Most of the students here, all of you, are Generation Z. So it's, it's safe to say that most of you weren't even around when it was in its heyday. Yet, when you walk through the store, they know who you are. That's amazing. How did this happen? Twofold. One, we've been in syndication since 1993, right. and we're also available on Amazon, so there's that. Uh, but what's really important is for the time that we were not the number one black show on television, right. but the number two show on all of television. Mm -hmm. So everyone watched. Right. So depicting HBCUs and HBCU life resonated around the country and mm -hmm. around the world for what we sh showed on television. Right. Uh, enrollment in HBCUs doubled during the prime time. That's we amazing. Were on. 
So now with the next generation, for everyone who was either in school or who grew up watching, now their children watch. Yeah. Or now when their children are of age and getting ready to go to college, they're like, I want to introduce you to the show because what did we talk about on the show? We talked about AIDS, we talked about domestic violence, right. we talked about student protests, we talked about racism, we talked about poverty, we talked about homelessness. All of these issues are still relevant today. Mm -hmm. And particularly when you are of college age, it's a time when one starts to develop their sense of self and your position on these substantive issues. Yeah. So that's evergreen territory. Yeah. That's why it, it, it's lasted as long, and every now and then we made you laugh at the same time. We talked about, on the way up, how popular it was. I actually finished TCU, Texas Christian University, not an HBCU. Yeah. When you guys were on the air, the entire campus shut down on Thursday night. We didn't My have CTV. club meetings. We didn't have practice. I think the football players were probably the only ones that were on the field doing something. But we knew not to schedule our meetings that night because everybody stopped to watch Cosby in a different world. Yes. When you guys went off the air, because I finished in 93, we didn't know what to do with ourselves on Thursday night. We were literally wandering the campus, campus aimless. Um, it, it's, it's one of the nicest things that anyone associated with the show hears on almost a daily basis. Yeah. Which is, I went to Howard because I watched your show. That's awesome. I became a doctor because I watched your show. I became a lawyer because I watched your show. I had no intention of going to school yeah. until I watched your show. And now, I've even had professors mm -hmm. say I am now teaching because right. of, I even had HBCU presidents say I am an <laughs> HBCU president because I watched a different world. I love that. You know, it's. I think one of the things that was so appealing about the show was that you had every character that really emulated the flavors of black America. So you had everything from the bougie princess yes. from the South to the bohemian Freddie. Yes. You had the young woman who was striving from uh, modest means to become a doctor. And of course, Dwayne Wayne came from Baltimore, the hood, or wherever he came from, and but he was still striving. And then your character, Ron Johnson, new money. Daddy had a what a, a, a car dealership. dealership, and you were not hurting. No, it, it, there, there were in many ways uh, art reflecting life. You know, my dad was an entrepreneur, and so I, I think that kind of seeped in uh, to what the writers put into the character. But the, the other demographic was we had Lou Myers, Glenn Turman that represented yeah. mature folks. And, and one of the, it's really interesting that um, we were the number two show on television most of the time. Mm -hmm. But we were, on occasion, it's one of the great joys to be able to say ever that you were the number one show on television awesome. any given week. The week we were number one, uh, if you go back in history to the first Iraqi war, yeah. George H. Bush right. had given Saddam Hussein an ultimatum. Mm -hmm. You had 24 hours to comply with the U.S.'s demands mm -hmm. or there would be serious consequences. Yeah. That was on a Thursday, and that Thursday night episode was an episode where Glenn Turman, Colonel Taylor, was counseling Blair Underwood's character. That was one of the best. Who was about <laughs> to go off to war. Yeah. 
And he gave this very impassioned speech at the end because everyone was so proud mm -hmm. of Blair's character that he was, you know, this soldier about to go off to war and he finally confessed he didn't want to go. Right. And he was scared. And Colonel Taylor talked him through it. Mm -hmm. Well, that episode was number one show on television wow. that week. It was written by a gentleman named Dominic Hoffman, who played a character on the show, and Jasmine Guy. Yeah. And that night, after the show went off the air at midnight, the U.S. began bombing Iraq for the first time. I remember that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. off on so many topics yeah. and we talked about the wedding I mean that's my favorite if you, if you have watched one of the best episodes of a different world you know it's when Dwayne Wayne was like baby please <laughs> by his boy Ron. Yes. I love the way you were like holding folks off it was awesome but let's talk about some of our favorite episodes I said on the, the ride up besides that one the other one that really resonated and still resonated today is the episode where you guys were at a rival football game and some of the fans from the other school, not an HBCU we pick up, right. um, may have written or almost wrote something that looked like the N-word on one of your brand new cars that your father, Ron Johnson's father, had purchased for him. And there was a skirmish. Uh, Kadeem and I, it is our favorite episode, it, it's called Cats in the Cradle, and it was told Rashomon style, uh, and for anyone who doesn't know what Rashomon style means, it was told from both points of view. So the story was told from Dwayne and Ron's point of view, and from the other three gentlemen's mm -hmm. point of view. And uh, so it, it's, it's a classic tale of there's your side, their side, and the truth. Right. So you get to see how it plays out, but from our side, we were these sweet young men that yes, just wanted to course. go to a game. <laughs> and from their side, we were some boys from the hood thugs yeah. who were, you know, trying to beat them up. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a really challenging week. One of the actors uh, that was in that episode was an actor named Dean Kane. Right. And Dean, who ultimately would go on to play Superman in the Superman series, was a friend. Mm -hmm. So to have to have this racially charged, combative sort of performance with him was really difficult mm -hmm. because you kind of had to go there. Right, right, and right. That was hard for us. Uh, it was also difficult or different because it was such a serious subject, which was what made our show unique for a half-hour comedy that mm -hmm. we dealt with such heavy issues. Right. Um, but it was informative because as as we went through that process uh, as actors and then the characters, there was this progression of growth and understanding. Right. Um, one of the other actors that played the policeman who gave this speech at the end, you know, if you judge me by my color, you don't know if I'm a Ku Klux Klan racist or if I marched with Dr. Yeah, King. that was powerful. You, you'll never know. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that the fight broke out as they attempted to spray paint the N-word on my car, mm -hmm. uh, by the time we finished getting out of lockup, and now we had to come back. Yeah. Someone else had completed it. 
Yeah. And the idea that no matter what you do to try to stop it, it's still going to happen. Is out there yeah. and exists, and you'll have to deal with it eventually. Well, and it was so layered. You know, there was their side, your side, but then there was one part that happened that was in the now, and that was when Whitley and and Freddie and and Kim came to see you guys in lockup, and the other guys were like, "Oh, I could really," you know, it was it was it was pejorative towards women. That was a black girl I would be interested in. Yes, something to put it nicely. Yeah. Um, again. If, if you're gonna have a, a thoughtful and real conversation about grown up and difficult issues, that's what it would sound like. That was like. real. And uh, um, it, it's, it's also the reaction, not only that you see from us, but yeah. the sound effect was not piped in. So in other right. words, in, in television, you can sweeten the show and you can put extra laughter or something, but when you hear him say that, mm -hmm. the audience went, whoo! Yeah, like, no, wow, really? Wow, we cut deep yeah. in, and we were. Um, and, and, and we didn't have emotions that were that raw from a performance side, or I think from an audience side, save for another episode, which was the Aunt Jemima episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that was difficult because it dealt with issues of colorism. With skin color, yes. But specifically, the, the actress, uh, Charnel Brown, who played Kim Reese, she had dealt with, because she's beautifully chocolate dark skin. Gorgeous. She had dealt with issues of being called Aunt Jemima yeah. herself. Wow. And to go back and revisit that mm -hmm. uh, and do that publicly and for the world yeah. was really hard for her. Yeah. Uh, but again, th that episode, I want to say, got nominated for an Emmy um, because it was what I enjoy most, and that's good storytelling. That's awesome. So, for the students that are in here that may be watching on Amazon, or maybe their parents have exposed them to their VHS tapes. <laughs> like some of us. Yeah. What, what can these students learn from a show that was about an HBCU? Well, a different world. If, if you're attending HBCU, I, I think you will learn that there are other people that understand and want to exalt your experience. Mm -hmm. People want to, you know, as, as one of the things I hear from a lot of HBCU students is that they are challenged by their peers who go to a PWI mm -hmm. and want to compare or contrast or try to diminish yeah. their efforts, their work, right. and their learning experience right. as less than. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the things, and quite frankly, that was another issue, another show that we dealt right. with as well. Uh, but what you can learn, and, and what's most important about television and film for projects that I think are most impactful, mm -hmm. audiences respond to them for two reasons. One, they want to say, there's a world I've never seen. Mm -hmm. so you can take that like Avatar. Right. Or you could say, uh, there's something, so, something or someone I want to be like. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, that's who I am. Yeah. You see yourself reflected in what's portrayed. Mm -hmm. And that's why I have 
tried to be as thoughtful about the decisions and choices uh, in the 45-minute bio that the gentleman had to read uh, <laughs> of, of my desire to be uh, have a positive impact on television. Yeah. It's because there's nothing wrong with telling the story of a drug dealer who becomes a, a, a rap label owner and a music type. Right. Except I've heard that story many sure. times. There's nothing wrong about telling the truth about slave stories. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I can go back to Mandingo. Yeah. We're here in the, in the cradle of Alice Haley. I, Roots was transformative for right. me. But I've heard those stories. Mm -hmm. I, I tell people all the time we are living in an era where there are more black billionaires and millionaires all the time. Yeah. Where are their stories? Yeah. Why aren't we hearing more about them? Isn't and this why like? we loved Hidden Figures? Because we had seen the domestic stories. We'd seen the slave stories. But to reach back and tell a story of these women who are pioneering at NASA, I think you're right. I think that's awesome. It, it, it's even more true for women of color because for women of color on television now, the predominant image of women of color yeah. on television is a housewife. Yeah. And what that conveys. If they're even married. And <laughs> there you go. Right. Or it's as, you know, the, the ingenue, you know? Uh -huh. uh, and, and, and oftentimes, oversexed or completely unable to find a mate. Right. Or just angry and ready to pick a fight. There's that. Mm -hmm. So not that these stories can't be told, but where's the balance? Yeah. Where, with, with all of the television, there's a, there's a representation of every different kind of character. Mm -hmm. And that balance needs to be portrayed in our community. And for me, one of the most frustrating things is that there was a time when you could say the industry only wants to cast as Robert Townsend parody in uh, Hollywood Shuffle. Yeah. You know, you had to be the pimp or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. Well, now we have a lot of African-American producers, many of whom produce the same exact stories. Yeah. In, a, in, a, in an industry that claims it wants diversity, Mm -hmm. Diversity is synthetic if it's only about how a person looks, yeah. and it's not a diversity of thought. That's inclusion. It's not a diversity of story that they, they tell. Right. And that needs to change. So two things you get asked all the time. Yeah. One is, do people call you Ron Johnson? Somebody called me Ron Johnson this morning. <laughs> so the answer is yes. Second thing you get asked all the time, and I have to say that you, a different world has been compared to Gronish, and Gronish even did this vision, this video uh, tribute to a different world by Opening doing the press. show open. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. But the question is, will there ever be a reboot, and what would that look like? Uh, the answer to a reboot is one never wants to say never, right? Because you never know. Uh, but I would say our fans have been rabid for a reboot for probably Ages. <laughs> 15 or almost tw yeah. 15 to 20 years, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and there's one thing that I could, in, in the, the avalanche of shows across the landscape of television that have gotten a reboot from Arrested Development to Fuller House to Will and Grace to uh, pick one. Right. They all have one thing in common. Uh-huh. All white shows. Wow. 
Not a single show with the cast of color has been given a reboot. Not a one. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I believe that there's coincidences can exist. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a coincidence because, again, I say content reflects leadership. Yeah. And it doesn't matter that there's an audience that says, yes, we want it. Look at how well Black Panther did. Mm -hmm. For decades, Hollywood said a film starring an all-African-American all cast, mm -hmm. one, can't do big budget, and two, doesn't travel well internationally. Yeah. And that's where films really make their money mm -hmm. in the international sales mm -hmm. if it's not a huge hit domestically. Black Panther said, you're wrong. Yeah. And now Jordan Peele is saying, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing at least an opportunity, and Jordan in particular, telling stories that are different than one would expect. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that literally, even though it had the Marvel Universe behind it, mm -hmm. but that a black man can be a superhero. It's awesome. Is an extraordinary tale. I was on a, where, where was I at? I gotta think where, where I was, because I don't want to say it because it wasn't like sure. I was on a bus or a train, but I was somewhere and there was a woman and she had her son and he had a Black Panther doll. I love it. And they had all the gadgets. It's awesome. <laughs> it was so awesome. Yeah. So futuristic and, and so awesome. And, and if you're a comic book head, and, uh -huh. I'm, and I'm a Marvel guy more than DC, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is about to give up Iron Man and the rumor is because in the comic books, mm -hmm. when Tony Stark retired, uh, I forget the character's name, but Iron Man was replaced by a black woman. Oh. And the thought is that the, young, like that. In, the, <laughs> the young engineer in the Avengers or in Black Panther uh -huh. potentially could be the next Iron Man. Wow. That could, that could become her franchise. So Daryl, what's next for you? What's going on? You got projects you can talk about? Or? Uh, I, I'm, I'm working on a, a autobiographical film because I'm, I'm doing something a, a little different. Oh, I it's, like that. Uh, um, but it's an autobiography of a man named Eddie Antar, uh -huh. who owned an electronics chain in New York called Crazy Eddie. Uh, but he was a cool liar and a villain. We're calling wow. it the Goodfellas for Sephardic Jews, which speaks <laughs> to the unique taste that I have, and the, the idea that this young black man will be trying to yeah. produce this movie about Sephardic Jews in an electronic chain. But likewise, most people don't know that Manchester by the Sea, film that was nominated for Oscars and mm -hmm. won Oscar, yeah. was produced by a woman named Kimberly Stewart. Oh. Kimberly Stewart is a black woman, producer of that film, who's the daughter of Dave Stewart, who's the number one, is the CEO of the largest black-owned company yeah. in America. Yeah. That's exactly right. So his daughter is, is moving and shaking in Hollywood, but one would have never thought a film like Manchester by the Sea awesome. about this, you know, New England depressing story. <laughs> yeah, I had the chance to film. talk to him over the phone and he mentioned that his daughter was doing something, but he just kind of, he didn't make it that big. <laughs> That's it, awesome. It, it's, it, she is very much following the footsteps of uh, Larry Ellison's daughter, yeah. um, who started Annapurna Films, mm -hmm. which is another example of a, a uh, a daughter of a wealthy entrepreneur making serious inroads and in, in telling great stories. And yeah. Hollywood. Well, tell us where we can find you online. I'd like to make sure my listeners know where to follow you, where to... I'm in all of the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, 
with creator, entrepreneur, Daryl M. Bell, of course, actor from a different world. How many of you remember him from Spike Lee Joint, School Days? That was actually his first role. A little trivia, you know, I couldn't remember his name in that movie, but his big brother X-Ray. You remember that? Anyway, you might have heard us refer to the drive up, the drive up, the drive up. Well, Daryl flew in from Hollywood, of course, but he connected in Dallas and ended up on my flight when it was time to go to Memphis. So Lane sent the very capable Chief Joy as our driver and security detail to drive us from Memphis to Jackson. And that's where a lot of our conversation happened on the way down and on the way back. If you will, just go by my website at uh, Musings on the Road. Click on that on the front page and see a personal essay there about our drive back and the detour we took to the National Civil Rights Museum where (sighs) the Lorraine Motel stands and the room and the balcony where MLK took his last breaths are memorialized. What an experience to have with Daryl Bell and with Chief Joy, who also happens to be an alpha. And the timing was impeccable with this, April 4th, being the anniversary of MLK's death. And let's take a moment of silence to remember him today. All right. Okay, y'all. We got another episode coming, and it's going to be quick. It's not going to be as long as this one. But you'll want to hear from the president of Lane College, Dr. Logan Hampton, coming up next. The Culture Soup Podcast is a production of No Silos Communications.